Welcome to the Five Good Ideas podcast. This is where we rebroadcast some of the best sessions of Maitri's popular Lunch and Learn program. I'm your host, Gayatri Kumar, and I'm a communication specialist at Maitri. We're a Toronto-based organization committed to exploring solutions to poverty in Canada using a human rights approach. For each session of Five Good Ideas, we invite an expert from the nonprofit or corporate sector to share five practical ideas on a key management issue facing nonprofit organizations today. As work becomes busier and pressure to do more with less becomes the rule rather than the exception, we're seeing more and more burnout in the workplace. In the session you're about to hear, originally recorded on January 28, 2020, we look at how individuals, managers, and organizations can create psychologically safe workplaces. Our speaker for this session is Christine Yip. Christine is the founder of Organizations for Impact, a management consultancy that works across sectors to build more inclusive, psychologically safe, and empowering workplace cultures. Here's Christine with her five good ideas. So thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you, uh, Liz, for that introduction. Thank you, Maitri, for having me. And thank you for everyone here and on the live stream for taking time out of your day to talk about this really important topic. Um, I really like the that Liz, um, in, the land, in the land acknowledgement, talked about the um, one, one bowl, multiple spoons idea. Um, I think it fits really well with this topic of psychological safety because it's really about that we're all sort of sharing from the same bowl. And we have to make sure we're okay as well as other people other people are okay. And what we do and what we take impacts what other people take. And the whole kind of concept around that is really embedded in what this talk is about. It's about psychological safety and how we create a culture of psychological safety it starts with us as individuals and it impacts um, how our people managers manage and how our organizations manage. So it's really a collective shared responsibility to create sort of a psychologically safe workplace. So I just want to start with a show of hands. How many of you have actually heard before you saw kind of the Maitri advertisement, but heard the concept of psychologically, psychological safety at work? Okay, so most people have. Um, I would call it sort of a, a very close cousin to sort of the not-for-profit um, decent work kind of movement. It has a lot of overlap with it. It talks about it a little bit differently. Um, the term psychological safety became um, popularized, I think, a few years ago after Google um, kind of did uh, research on team effectiveness across their firm. So they looked at around 150 teams to try to understand what were those factors that contributed to successful teams. And what they found, they found multiple factors that, that led to that, but they found this concept of psychological safety was actually the key differentiator between teams that were effective and teams that were not. And the way they defined it was um, it's the sort of shared belief within teams that you are safe to speak up, to voice alternative views, um, to ask for help, and to sort of take risks and fail. And this was kind of the idea um, from a Google perspective, which is very um, centered around innovation, which is consistent with sort of the culture of Google. Then there's sort of this other kind of um, more Canadian um, research and, and discussion around psychological safety that's going on as well. So the Canadian Mental Health Commission, along with Great West Life and a few other partners, um, some psychologists at Simon Fraser University, have um, done a lot of work around psychological health and safety from sort of an occupational health and safety lens. So they take more of a risk management approach to it. So they, they define psychological safety as the organizations taking reasonable effort to actually reduce the risk 
to the psychological well-being of their people at work. Um, so they have created a whole bunch of materials and they're in their, your resources that you're going to be handed at the end of this or you might have them at your table. Um, they have a national standard they've created with you know, measures, policies, communication plans and everything. And so that's sort of the other side of the coin. And I see them as sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, to create an environment where people feel safe to speak up, um, to create an environment where the people feel that their organization is investing in efforts to make sure that their psychological safety is safe at work or their psychological well-being is safe at work, and to create an environment where people feel that when they go into work, they're not at risk from a psychological standpoint. I think all of those things are consistent across the two definitions, and that's really what creating sort of a psychologically safe culture is all about. So then the next question comes is, why do we care? Um, and I'm sure everybody in this room kind of already knows this, but I think it's worth talking about um, because creating the case for change for this is really important because although we all feel it and we talk about it every day, in order to get action and to see real change, we sometimes have to convince people with sort of data and sort of external, um, external insight on why it's important. So we know for individuals it's important. We know that 30% of individuals who um, have a mental health illness um, cite workplace stress as the number one reason for it. Um, we know that it's important, it's, it has impacts for organizations. Um, I think one of the most recent stats, which is not that recent, but um, the, the Conference Board of Canada said that their companies lose $16.6 .6 billion a year from absenteeism due to workplace stress and toxic kind of work factors. Um, and then you could think of all of the other organizational impacts. So you have risk of disability claims, you have risk of litigation. There's a lot of work around the Canadian sort of national standard looking at there's a lot more precedence for um, organizations to be at risk of employees kind of taking them to court over this sort of psychological safety, which in the past it might have just been sort of physical safety. And then it's important for society. So there's a researcher in Stanford. Um, he recently published a book called Dying for a Paycheck. Has anyone heard of it? Yeah, one in the back. So he's he's a or he's a psych organizational psychologist, which is similar to my background. And he basically did a study, and he looked at all of the toxic workplace factors that someone could experience. So job insecurity, um, a lack of perception of justice and equity at work, um, lack of control over how you do your job. Um, not getting enough feedback or um, recognition for the efforts that you put in. And he, he looked at all these factors and he looked at what was the impact of these factors on kind of the health, the physical health of Americans. And he found that five to 8% of healthcare costs in the US can be attributed to toxic workplace factors. And he even went e further and estimated that there's probably around 120,000 excess deaths a year because of the impact that toxic workplace practices has on our health. So I'm going to talk about my five good ideas, and you could be the judge of whether they're good or not, but based on my experience, my research, my work, um, so my work, as Liz mentioned, um, I started my career as, um, I worked as a, a human capital, which I hate that word, but a human capital um, management consultant, so working with companies to help improve um, how how managers manage people. So with that sort of experience in my own research, um, I sort of came up with these five good ideas. So I want to start the discussion um, just to contextualize why I kind of left the more traditional management consulting and decided I want to focus my career on helping companies build more psychologically safe cultures. And it is really rooted in my own personal experience, um, kind of living and surviving and then figuring it all out and going back. And I want to kind of share that with you guys. Um, so as I said, I started my career about 10 years ago in a global management consulting firm. 
So I was fresh out of grad school. I was really excited to start applying everything that I knew. And I really just hit, hit the ground running. This idea of it's not a race, it's a marathon. Like that was just not in my head. I just sort of raced out the gate and I just took everything in. And very quickly, I was very much 200% involved in my work, engaged 100%. I loved what I did. I was passionate about what I did. When I wasn't on my client site working, I was training new consultants. When I wasn't doing that, I was doing all of the corporate social responsibility work and I ended up kind of leading all that stuff off the side of my desk. When I wasn't doing that, I was engaged in thought leadership work. I was doing business development stuff. I was doing practice development stuff. And when I wasn't doing that in the evenings, I was at events for work, doing whatever it is that you do at events <laughs> for work. But there was a lot of them. And everything was good. And I, I was kind of taking it all in. And sort of the dark side of that culture didn't really show up until sort of about a year in. I got staffed on a project um, in Vancouver. And it was with a lead that had sort of a reputation for having pretty poor work habits. Um, he was the kind of guy that would get his whole team to take, you know, a two-hour lunch or a three-hour dinner and then expect everyone to work sort of all night with him. Um, he definitely didn't have boundaries between work and life. He didn't really have much life outside of work because of his own sort of years of toxic workplace practice. So if you were on his team, you became sort of his life and you really had no choice. So I was on this project with him, and it was a very short, kind of high-intensity project. And as the project progressed, we ended up, same sort of idea. He was, you know, getting us to take these long lunches. In my head, I'm like, why are we doing this? Like, we're just going to be working late. But I was too afraid to say anything. And I was afraid to say anything, one, because, you know, as a young, junior, high-achieving person, you want to make sure you're kind of performing at your best. But there was also this element of how our performance was evaluated. So at this firm how performance evaluation happened was at the end of every year, all of your project managers got into a room and they talked about every single kind of employee that was kind of one level below them and they talk, and they, they put them on a ladder. So everybody's performance, your performance was basically, everyone had to be on one rank of the ladder. There's no equal. So you were either above or below your peer. And that was directly connected through kind of a formula to your pay and your pr promotion. And at these types of firms, if you're not promoted after two years, like, you, you failed. So it was this very kind of upper out culture. So put me, this junior person, this high achieving person in this scenario with this leader, I'm not going to speak up. So we ended up pulling a couple all-nighters. And I was tired, but, you know, I sucked it up and I pushed through. Then the next project came right after. I got staffed right away. Another very high intense project. One of those projects where you're like, this is a new client. We really need to, you know, impress them. So let's roll up your sleeves and then you clear out your calendar and you just sort of work. I remember during that time my dog died and I, I started to feel really resentful that I couldn't grieve because I was just so busy. So that project ended. The next project happened right after. Same thing, high intensity project, working at a very kind of with the global leadership team, knowing you need to impress them. And by this time I knew I was exhausted. I was becoming very resentful, but I couldn't say anything because that sort of, that fear and the sort of system of evaluating you and all this stuff sort of sat in the back of my mind. And I remember the day that it sort of ended and that I sort of, I don't want to say cracked, but that the end of my rope. I had just finished that project and for once I was not staffed on another project. So I was really excited to just sort of relax. And the partner came to me and she said, Christine, I know you're done, but I could really use your help on this deck for this client. Can you do it? And this was like a Thursday or a Friday. 
So I said, okay, one more weekend, right? There's that voice in your head when you're working late and you're working weekends, you're just once more. So I did it, I went into work and I gave it back to her and she said, Christine, this is great. One more weekend of work and then you're good. And I just remember looking at her, turning around, walking away, going to where my team was and I just started crying. I was like, I can't do this anymore. And so a couple days passed, I did it, <laughs> and, um, but I did it knowing that this was it. Because that little voice in my head that, that continued to say, you can do this, you could move through, it just, it stopped. It wasn't there anymore. And I went to her and I said, listen, I have to quit. I can't do this anymore. And she looked at me. She's like, you know, Christine, I know you're tired, um, but you know, it's you. You take on too much. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, you know, it was hurtful, but at the same time, I think I don't even remember how, it, I was too tired to even re react. So I left and I took a few years of sort of recovery time. I ended up, you know, traveling to South Africa and getting involved with a lot of kind of social organizations there. That's when I ended up, you know, going to England and learning about social policy and, and really needing to sort of find my purpose again. And the truth was I loved my job. And I always describe it to people. Imagine spaghetti is your favorite meal but you're forced to eat spaghetti every day, like new, like morning to night, like five times a day, you're just like, I can't eat spaghetti anymore. <laughs> like, I don't want to see it. And that's kind of how it was. So I kind of took, I left my career path and, and long story, kind of years later, I ended up back in consulting. So I went back to another firm, very similar, very similar culture. But after going through kind of that recovery time and really reflecting on what was going on and who I am. And, and you know, a couple years of therapy, I went back with a new perspective and I changed the way I worked. I had value in myself. So I was able to stand up for myself when I thought something was wrong. That gut feeling when you're like, this isn't right, but maybe, maybe it's fine. Maybe it's just me. Like I started to be able to really differentiate when that voice, the, the kind of reality of that voice. I communicated more. I spoke up. I talked about boundaries. I spoke with my lead um, about when something was too much and things Things went well. I was able to manage sort of a nine to five in this very um, gruesome, like gr grueling culture and do it well. But I also had to isolate myself. I sort of stayed on my client site. I didn't engage in any activities with the firm. I couldn't go to any sort of team events because I knew every time I interacted with someone, I could feel that culture and that pressure coming down on me. So when I reflected about, okay, what happened, you know, 10 years ago or eight years ago, there were things that I could have done differently. There were a lot of things my managers could have done differently. And there were a lot of things that the organization could have done differently. And when I talk to clients and I work with clients and even my clients then, every single person is feeling this sort of weight and pressure of, of the organization on sort of their psychological well-being, whether it's a toxic boss or, you know, an unrealistic set of demands or a complex project that you really don't feel like you have any support in. Um, everyone's sort of feeling it. And organizations know it's a problem. And as of right now, a lot of solutions that are out there are focused around sort of having um, more so sort of stress management. So yoga and meditation, which is all really great. Um, but the one thing I think if, if we only focus on that as the solution, we're going to miss this huge other side. Because focusing just on that sort of puts it on the backs of all of us. It says, okay, Things are going to stay the same. Just calm down. Just learn how to kind of manage. Just, you know. And I think the change that's required is a culture shift. It's a culture shift in what we value at work. It's a culture shift of what we praise as good work. And it's also a little bit of skill development. 
you know, now that technology is sort of adjusting what work is and where work happens, the lines between work and life are much more blurred and our need to start managing it in a little more intentional way is more so now than it was before. And we need that skill set to be able to manage through that. Um, so my five good ideas cover kind of, um, they go from talking about what we can do as individuals to what managers can do to what organizations can do, um, which I think is sort of the, the shared responsibility that we all have. Okay, so I'm going to start with the first one. Uh, so the first one is compassion. Um, so compassion for yourself and compassion for others. And this is really about learning to value yourself. And kind of the assumption underneath is we cannot create a compassionate environment that fosters psychological safety if we are not compassionate for ourselves. And this is something that, you know, if I look back to what happened in my, in my story, one of the reasons why I couldn't speak up is because I felt that my value was based on how much I produced. And if I didn't produce, then I wouldn't be as valuable. And maybe I would lose my job. And if I lost my job, what value do I have? And I know as kind of not-for-profit sector leaders, this idea of inherent value isn't new to you. But I think it's much easier to talk about that when you're helping someone else versus when you're going through things on a day-to-day -day and to reflect on your reactions to things and when you feel afraid or that wall that's keeping you from kind of standing up for yourself or standing up to your team, that it really is about how you value yourself and what you think creates value in you. Um, so the idea, so I, so after kind of going through a lot of kind of reflection and really being able to, and I said this to a client I was talking at the other day, if you told me 10 years ago, I would be telling people about the power of just looking at the, looking in the mirror before you leave or meditating and remembering who you are and reminding yourself of your strengths and who you are at your best self, I would say like, no way, that sounds so hokey. But the power of doing that, it changes the way you approach the world. You approach the world out of a place of, of high esteem for yourself, of contribution rather than fear. And the way you solve problems that come at you completely shifts. So I want to talk quickly about this kind of strategy that you could use. And it's, it's from sort of the positive psychology literature. Um, and the activity is called um, relational self-affirmation. So they've done studies to look at how effective this activity is in creating resistance, um, helping people create, uh, be better problem solvers, manage stress better, um, and it even sh is shown to have um, positive outcomes for your physical health as well. And so what the activity is, and on your resource sheet, there's a TED Talk. Um, the research is by a fellow named Dan Cable from London Business School, and it's a very simple activity. So either you or you have five people that know you well, Write down a story of when you were operating at your best. When the way you were operating was consistent with, the with your values, the values that you um, are proud of, and how that, what, what the situation was and when you operated at your best. And that simple activity has been shown when they're testing it out using sort of randomized control trials, that the groups who do that activity versus the groups who don't, when you look at them kind of six to eight months later, the employ the outcomes that you see, the satisfaction with work, the resiliency that you see over time, is there's a significant difference. So it is sort of a powerful activity. So I want to guys to give you guys that because I think that's something that you could write on a cue card, you know, put it in your top drawer. When you know, when you get triggered or something sort of stressing you out, or you're in that toxic environment, you could read that and remind yourself of who you are despite everything and the value that you have. So that's the first idea. <laughs> the second idea is about communicating with courage. Um, and this is about finding your voice. And 
you know, again, if I look back to um, why I wasn't able to speak up is because it's scary. You're, it's scary in those moments. You're afraid if you ask a question that might look stupid or if you say you can't do something, it's something that um, people are going to think less of you. And once I started speaking up, I realized that I could actually negotiate my time with my manager a little bit better. If I thought, thought something was too much, it didn't have to be this sort of anger that was like, oh, how dare, how dare they give me this? Or this like silent resentment as I just like suffered through it. It could be a conversation where you say, hey, you know, I think this might be too much. How can we redistribute this out? Or when you're having a conflict with somebody at work, having those conversations. And it sounds easy to do, but that stuff takes courage. And it, it, it's very much related to the compassion, which is why I start with that. Having that compassion for yourself allows you to have those conversations. And I had a client once, and, and the client was, it was a few months ago, and they brought me in to do some management training. Um, they were a small, growing research organization, and they were concerned that their leaders or their managers were not leading people appropriately. They weren't building, they weren't taking the time to develop their people and build this sort of pipeline of future leaders. So they asked me to do just some basic management training. So teach them how to give coaching, give feedback, communicate with their team. And after a couple sessions, it became very clear that these people were not, not coaching and giving feedback because they didn't have the skills. It was because they did not have the time. So the organization's mantra was, we have a can-do attitude. And for them, that means we say yes to everything the client wants, even if our team can't handle it. And we just like burn ourselves out until we do it. And I was, I was, as I was progressing through, I was like, you know, there's no point in continuing to teach these skills. What your team, and I said to my client, what your team needs is to learn how to negotiate and to learn that not saying yes, just saying yes and moving forward isn't saying no. And it's actually an easy thing to just sort of say yes and get things done and suffer in silence. It's the harder thing to stand up for yourself and figure out how can we get creative about making this work. Um, and so that's the second idea. The third idea is around um, finding those positive deviants and sharing their learnings. So this is really about training and training on those key skills and finding the pockets within your organization where people who where people are creating those psychologically safe spaces for themselves and for their teams. So when I went back into consulting, you know, I changed the way I work. I started to communicate more. I had compassion for myself. Um, and I, I, was, I was able to manage my time in, in a better, in, in a different way. And I saw some of my colleagues who I just saw as exactly where I was 10 years before. And I realized like in, a, in an organization, in such a high burnout culture, there are very simple skills or conversations that we could have to help people know when they should, when they can start pushing back and when they need to start sort of managing their schedule. Why aren't we training them on this? Why aren't we having a discussion right when people walk in the door saying, you know, this is going to be a difficult work environment. Here's some skills that you need to have, some skills in negotiating your time, some skills in having difficult conversations for you to be able to, to thrive here. And I always go back to a conversation I had with an old colleague of mine. She's a VP at one of the big banks, and she was telling me how, you know, the culture there is meetings. Everyone gets invited to every single meeting, and no matter if you need to be there or not. And you always get head nods because this is a big issue, meetings. And emails. Everyone gets CC'd on emails. And it was completely draining her team and her um, as well, but it was draining her team. And her boss like, did not understand why it was not necessary for her whole team to be at one meeting where only one person in the room needed to make a decision. 
And so what she had decided to do, and she was sharing with me, she's like, well, what I do is after these meetings get sent, I sit down with my team members and we go through their calendar and I sort of give them that permission to not go. And then I go and talk to the person who sent the meeting and I then have that conversation so that they know. And she's doing that on her own. And these are the people who are doing these things. They're not standing on a mountaintop yelling them out because they're often doing them against sort of the dominant culture. And that takes courage and that's really difficult. And so when, when I was talking to her, I thought, why can't we find these positive deviants, find the practices that are working for them, put them into some sort of training and find a way to amplify and scale those out? Because having those little, those little moments of safety are able to sort of, if we can amplify them, we can sort of create culture change sort of bottom up. The fourth idea is around um, role modeling and rewarding the behaviors that are consistent with creating a psychologically safe culture. And this is really for kind of the people leaders and managers in the room. I, I teach change management at Schulich, and if anybody knows anything about change management, we always talk about the power of just leaders talking or walking the talk. And if you want people to change, you, you have to change first. And this is a various this is a very obvious concept, but it's actually really hard to get leaders to do. And, you know, when I was working in that environment sort of 10 years ago, I had no role models who were actually working safely. Like I look back at all of my leads and they're all working the exact same way. And I remember that the CEO of that organization a few months ago, I saw that he stepped down and then it says he was retiring. Two weeks later, I saw that he died of cancer. And to me, it was so sad because he only gave himself two weeks because he was working the whole time. And he was like our CEO. And he was, you know, these kinds of firms, these people are sort of put up as these demigods or, or something like that. So th there was no role models. And in regards to sort of rewarding behavior, I was working in such a toxic way and everybody should have seen it. All of my managers saw it, but they knew they were getting good output. So they were not saying anything. And I was being rewarded. I would do overnight shifts. I would sort of sacrifice anything and I was getting rewarded. And I remember some of my colleagues who were doing, who were working really well, but they were actually leaving and they had a life outside of work. And I remember them saying to me, well, we're not getting the same ratings as you. And I just remember looking at them and saying, but you're happy. Like, I'm not. Like, it's, it's this backwards way that we're rewarding people. And so an example I want to use is, is a client I had way back when, um, and his name was Jim, and he was kind of an operations guy in a, in a company in Calgary. And he was just one of those natural kind of people managers. He just kind of got people. And I remember there was, um, it was a kind of a busy time. It was, it was a busy time for their finance department. And um, we all kind of knew that they were probably going to be working late during this period of time. And he was very kind of empathetic as time progressed. He was like, guys, like, I know it's going to be a late night, but, you know, I totally get it. And, and these little moments of just empathy really kind of release a little bit of the pressure on people. And I remember the night came where the whole finance team was working late. I was not on finance, but I was there because I was working all the time. And he, I remember he had no reason to stay. It was the tasks that were needed to be done were finance tasks. Like he had no, there was nothing for him to do. But I remember he stayed. He stayed all night with his team until they, maybe not until they were done, but he stayed for enough time to show that support and to show that he was there for them. Um, and I'll never forget how powerful that was because that creates sort of cont a contagious effect of how we're there, how we're there for each other. And that creates trust between your manager and you. I mean, it and creates a sense of fairness. And those are key things for creating a psychologically safe workplace. And then the last 
The last idea is sort of around how organizations can invest. So even if you have your self-compassion and you're creating a compassion environment for everyone around you, you're communicating, you're being courageous, and you're having those tough conversations, you know, you, you have some training and skill building going on, and you have people role modeling, how do we make sure that we're actually getting there in the long run? And that's around sort of these more broader organizational accountability mechanisms, which I see as how are we measuring that we're actually creating a psychologically safe workplace? Do we have the policies in place? Do we have the governance structure? Are there committees that are kind of together? Like, how do we put in those kind of structural systemic things to make sure that we're being held, we're actually being held accountable for it? Today, one of the main measures of employee um, attitudes is engagement. And I remember when I was in my organizational psychology grad school back in 2008, that was still sort of um, an academic kind of discussion. And, you know, 10 years down the road, every most CEOs and most senior level executives are looking at an engagement score to see how we're doing. I would love to see us reframe how we're measuring kind of employee attitudes, taking a psychological safety lens. We know the type of workplace that creates this like psychological safe culture. We know that it's a workplace that effectively manages demands with resources um, and efforts. We know that it's a workplace that provides people the sense that they have control and influence over how their work gets done. We know it's a workplace that provides feedback and recognition during what that matches sort of the effort that's being given. And just providing feedback regularly, especially during those kind of high intense times. We know that's an organization that there's support available, both support from your manager as well as social support. I think that's a really key thing too now because as we're starting to work more virtual, this idea of social isolation is starting to come up in research about the relationship between social isolation and burnout and these types of things because we need that social support in order to buffer some of those hard times. And then perceptions of justice at work. So are decisions that are made fair? Is the process to which decisions are made transparent? The, we know that this, these are the types of things that create psychologically safe workplaces. We should be measuring them. So those are sort of the five good ideas. And I think, you know, what can you do tomorrow? What, what's kind of the big takeaway? I think there's three things. As individuals, you could start, you could go home and write your story of when you're at your best. And you can make sure to keep it with you and use it on a day to day. This morning, I woke up and I did a little meditation and I brought up some of those memories that I kind of have stored around where I, I'm really proud of who I am and I'm able to kind of enter the world into a scary situation where, you know, I'm talking to 300 plus people and be able to do it out of a place of contribution rather than fear. Second thing, start a conversation. Start a conversation with your team, with your colleague next to you, maybe with the whole organization. And, you know, talk about what is psychological safety? What does it mean? What are the gaps? Where can we do better? And then if you're sort of an organizational leader or an HR director, I really encourage you, if you haven't already, go to the national, the, on the resources, I have a link to the national standard for psychological health and safety, because the resources that they have and the documentation that they have, you can just take that soup to nuts, start to implement kind of all of the, the governance structure, there's communication plans, there's measures, there's surveys, everything you need to start actually moving in this direction. So look at what's in the what's in the document, look at what they recommend and see where you are and start to try to close those gaps. Because I think, you know, as I said before, to create a psychologically safe workplace culture requires us all. We have to be able to change as individuals, as people managers, we have to be able to create those safe environments and as organizational leaders, we need to put in the infrastructure and systems in place that there's sort of accountability. 
And for me, when I look at what makes a successful organization, it's an organization that could effectively balance efforts around productivity and efforts around providing support. And I talk about it as this is the yin and yang. The productivity is the action. And the yin is the stuff, the soft stuff that we need in order to be a whole person, as well as sort of a whole organization that can achieve their objectives, not just in the short term, running like it's a, it's a sprint, looking at it from a marathon perspective and kind of looking at that long-term sustainability. And I think if we, if we do that and we focus our lens on how do we balance those two things across our organization, productivity and support, I think we'll create organizations that are more successful and I think we'll create organizations where people are happier. And that's really the ultimate goal of everything that I'm trying to do is make people happier at work. Um, so thank you all for your time and your attention. And, and those are my five good ideas. Thank you for listening to Five Good Ideas with Christine Yip. We link to her five good ideas, her resources, and a full transcript of today's session in our show notes. You can find all of our Five Good Ideas sessions from past seasons on the Maytree website. That's maytree.com forward slash five dash good dash ideas. And of course, you can subscribe to the Five Good Ideas podcast to continue to listen to our best sessions. See you next time. 